You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. The Apostle John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He was not on our side of the aisle. I don't, I don't write that he's, this is in the Bible, it's not me. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will, soon, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. Jesus is very, very encouraging here. To the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. Let me read that again. For who? Everyone. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt had lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of today's message is Restless and Diseased. Restless and Diseased. St. Augustine said this, he said, and you've heard me quote this before, our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. Christianity is what we do with our restlessness. That's what the Christian life is. Christian life is what do we do with our restlessness? First question is why are we restless? Why are our hearts restless? And the reason is not a negative one. The reason is a beautiful one because God has given us desire. Desire is what makes us restless. So for a small example, when you are maybe driving home from a family party and you drive through a neighborhood and you see beautiful houses and you feel restless about where you live because you see a place where you'd like to live, it's desire that makes you feel restless. Does this make sense? There's a reason why all throughout the Bible they say if you see God, you'll die, or no man should be able to look on the face of God. And the reason is, is not because we're sinful and so his goodness would kill us because we're sinful. Here's the reason. If we saw God in these bodies, we would have such desire and absolutely no capability of laying hold of it that it would kill us. God would be so perfect, so beautiful, so amazing, so everything we've wanted, and we would know immediately that who I am right now cannot lay hold of that kind of beauty. And it would drive us insane. It would kill us. Our restlessness starts with desire pointed in many different directions. We have desire for good things. 
We have desire for influence and power. We have desire for romance and relationships. We have desire to see the world work. We have desire to have our needs met. We have all these desires. And the problem is, Sorian Kierkegaard said this. He said, the Christian life is taking our desire and then using it to will one thing. Taking all of my desire and willing God with it. How many here would admit, and I think you know that we have a cool enough church where you don't have to worry about this, but how many here have seen all 7,000 Harry Potters? Literally one person was like, here's my thing with that. People are like, I have somebody in my house tell me that I shouldn't be ministering because Jacqueline has all the Harry Potter books. Like, but here's the other thing, you're also in my house because your life is falling apart a little bit, right? So maybe get some Harry Potter into your house. <laughs> there, there's, there's, a point where, there's a point where Harry's glasses break, and Hermione says, Oculus, repair them, and his glasses fix. And we bug out. Oh, my God, that's witchcraft. Here's what's funny. J.K. Rowling's a genius. Here's, here's what's funny. You know, you know here, here's how we do witch, witchcraft. We take our credit card out. And we wave it around like this, and we say, Oculus, repair it, and we think that what we buy with it will give us better glasses to look at life through. So chill out with Harry Potter. I'm going to preach from Harry Potter today a little bit. Oh, I still feel, I'll say one more thing about it. Plus, also, my wife loves Harry Potter, and I think this is scoring me some tremendous points as we speak. Am I right? Some? Okay. Not that I need any more. I love you so much. You're the best. When Harry finally faces Lord Voldemort, what does he say? He says, the boy who lived has come to die. So here's the funny thing. He was supposed to die when he was young. Kind of like Jesus with Herod. But he didn't. Kind of like Jesus with Herod. And then Harry says, you know, I'm going to go into the woods, and I'm going to go to Voldemort, and I'm going to let him kill me. But as he walks there, he has in his hand what's called the resurrection stone. I think Stephanie sang a little bit about it today. And when he died, he lived. And this is how he destroys Voldemort. So if you don't mind, I'm going to preach a little bit from Harry Potter today because there is a beautiful expression of idolatry in Harry Potter, and it's not the show itself or the books. But Voldemort, the evil person who's trying to do whatever it is he's trying to do, he does something to preserve his life, and he creates what's called in the books and in the movie Horcruxes. And what that is is he takes himself and he puts part of himself into an object. He puts part of himself into a person. He, he puts part of himself into all these different things so that way you can't kill him. You'd have to kill all of seven of those things to kill him. But the problem is because he's so spread out into all these different things, he actually has no life in him as a person, and he needs to be carried around in somebody's hat. Because there's no, he has no substance anymore because he's spread himself out into so many things trying to preserve himself that he actually no longer is able to be a self. He's so dehumanized by putting himself into so many different things that he becomes a parasite of dependency because he can't move, think, breathe, or do anything on his own. He's dehumanized. 
we have a lot of desires and we create horcruxes. And we take this restlessness that we feel and we take this dis-ease that we feel in life and we try and put it into our job. We try to put it into our family. We try to put it into uh, our joys. We try to put it into our education. We try to put it into our opinion. We try to put it into how well we can influence people, how well we can argue, how well we do at work. We put it into all of these realities because we're trying to find something that can slow my restlessness down that can satisfy it somehow. And what happens is I put my desires in so many different things that I myself forget who I am. I'm lost to myself. I'm my job. I'm my preaching. I'm my social network. I'm the last good thing that I did. I'm, the, I'm as good as, I, as my last relationships. I'm I'm as strong as the relationship that means the most to me. And so what happens is when these things start to fail us, when our horcruxes start to not be able to contain us any longer, we die with them. Amen. So Jesus starts this horrible passage where he's telling us, metaphorically of course, if any part of our body is causing us to sin, cut it off. No jokes. I'll make no jokes. The joke was me being silent, right? Like, and everyone realizing what I could have joked about. Why does Jesus say to do this? Here's the reason. He starts by saying, don't criticize them for casting out demons in my name. This is not an exclusive club. No one is qualified enough to say anything in my name. So when people do, my name is a converting sacrament. If they're using my name enough, it will do something to them. So just let them keep doing it. And then at the very end, the last line in the text says, and be at peace with one another. In between, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your feet cause you to sin, cut one of them off. Why is he in the middle of something about unity and being at peace with one another? Then he's looking at us saying, any cause of sin in you is the cause of sin in somebody else. The worst sin we could commit now is the sin of thinking that my sin doesn't matter to you. That it's something I need to deal with. That it's something that affects my life. Every sin I commit affects this church profoundly, and every sin you commit affects this church profoundly in any social networks that we have. We are social beings knit together by God, fearfully and wonderfully made. And every time we sin, we don't just affect us, we affect the world around us every time. So Jesus launches into this devastating metaphor of repent when you sin. Be aware of your sin. Be aware of its causes and repent because your sin is causing other people to. And the same works for you too. Their sin causes us to. Listen, there was a lot of sin on TV this week. And there was a lot of sin in response on social media. I almost had to throw my phone into the Hudson River. I, I was watching, I was, just, I, was very, I was very attentive because I wanted to see more how people responded. I'm going to talk about this. We have this restlessness and it causes us to sin impulsively. We sin impulsively with our opinions. We sin impulsively with our words. We sin impulsively with food. We sin impulsively with money. We sin impulsively with our snap judgments. We sin impulsively when we're already responding before the person's done talking. 
We sin impulsively when we judge a group of people. We sin impulsively when we assume somebody else's grief is worse than somebody else's. We sin impulsively because we're looking to find some kind of calm in ourselves because we're restless. And Jesus is saying, when you see that part of you that's impulsive, get rid of it. Because it's dragging you down. When it drags you down, it drags down a whole group of people around you. I truly believe that when Jesus refers to our body, he is referring to the church. Because everything he says there is in the context of, of it's plural. It's, it's be at peace with one another. So tear off your hand if it's causing you to sin. Saying that your sin messes with the person next to you. If I don't think my sin has anything to do with you, I'll, I'll work on it at my own pace. But if I know right now that my bad attitude towards the next person that cuts me off on the road can profoundly affect you, maybe I'll work on it quicker. Maybe I'll be more aware of it when I realize it has consequences that are out of my control. So I want to look at a story that illustrates this perfectly. It's found in Numbers. And I want to say this. We're going to go to this story. I'm going to breeze through the story. But I want us to understand, when we read the Bible, we're not reading the Bible to find answers. We're reading the Bible so the Holy Spirit can locate our heart in the story. We don't read the Bible to find answers. We read the Bible so the Spirit can show us in any text, in any story that we're reading, where our heart is. Sometimes our heart will be right, and so we'll be the good guy in the story, and we'll see the responsibility that we now have as being that good guy. Sometimes our heart will be the Pharisees or the Philistines or the Amalekites, and we'll, we'll, be, we'll be the terrible person in the story, and we'll have to pray then and say, how do I get my heart out of this place to Christ? So when you read the Bible, and you should be reading the Bible every day. Every day. Read it to find your heart, not to find your neighbor's heart, not to find your coworker's heart or your kid's heart or your spouse's heart, to find your heart. Because what does Jesus say? The, the, the cutting off of our hand or the cutting off of our foot is just a metaphor for repenting. And what does he say? He says, be at peace with one another. Well, how do I live in peace? How do, how do we be at peace? We each repent of our own stuff. I don't... If I have aught with Tim, I don't have peace with Tim because I finally get him to submit to what he's doing. I have peace with Tim because I finally cut off in me what's causing me to sin. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. We have to make peace. Peace is something that has to be fashioned because we don't have it. And so it's something that has to be fashioned. And the way that we make peace, the furnace, the kitchen for making peace is our own personal repentance. When we repent, we're cooking up the stuff that turns into peace. And we're serving it to the world around us. If I can repent of my sin, if I can repent of my idolatry, if I can get my heart out of all the horcruxes I've put it in, it's going to be a lot easier to be around me and there will be a little bit more peace. I'm judging by your silence that everyone just so agrees with that that we're on to the next point. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. The Israelites are now freed from Egypt, and they're in the wilderness. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. 
but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing but this manna to look at. Let's talk about these verses for a moment. First, it says, the rabble. It wasn't everybody. It was some people in the group. When you look up that word, it has to do with a a small amount of the collected whole. So a few people had this craving and said, we're bored with the manna. We ate better in Egypt than we're eating in the wilderness. You know, what's going on here? And they wept and they had a craving. And it affected the entire group because everybody had to stop and deal with this. So the small rabble affected everyone. It's Jesus saying, Chop off your hand if you're sinning because your sin is what's keeping everyone from living in peace with each other. But what are some symptoms that are restlessness, that we've placed it in things that are not Christ? One symptom is we remember the past or imagine the future wrongly. What did they say? They said, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. And here's the part. They're, they're 100% right. If they ate meat in the wilderness, where would they get it from? Where would they get meat in the wilderness if they were going to have... They're, they're craving meat. If they wanted meat, they'd have to kill their own cattle. So one of the ways that we know that we're taking our restlessness and we're putting it in the wrong stuff is if we want to consume, but at the same time, we don't want to give anything up for that consumption. I want more, but I don't want the more to come from what I have. I want to eat meat, but I don't want to get rid of the meat that I'm raising. I want more money, but I don't want to be faithful with it. I want a better relationship, but I also don't want to stop lying. Well, let me rephrase that. I want a better relationship, but I don't want them ever to call my character into account once I'm in that relationship. I want to serve in the church, but I don't want to have to submit to the church's calendar. I want to dot, dot, dot. It's Spirit of Beacon Day. I'm going to try to be nice and funny and lighthearted. They said it cost us nothing, and the reality is it didn't cost them their cattle. But they were slaves in Egypt. It cost them everything to have something for free. It cost them everything to have something for free. They were not their own. Selective imagining. And we always preach, Israel wanted to go back to the past. They did not want to go back to the past. What they were doing, listen to me carefully because we do this too. We never want to go back to our past. We imagine a future that is the best of our past without anything that cost us something. That's what we're pursuing. We don't want to go back to where we came from. We want to move ahead, and we want the stuff that was good where we came from to come with us, but the stuff that cost us something, we want to leave that behind. So Israel didn't want to go back to their past. They wanted to go to the promised land with the best stuff of Egypt, which is what we said last week. Give me the blessing, but don't change me. Let me crave what I want to crave and be cool with it. Cut it off. Because you can't live at peace with one another with that attitude. The restlessness is in something else. The restlessness is not in God at that point. Maybe the most devastating one, they had a disdain for what was loyal to them. I love a few other translations it says, and we have nothing but this worthless manna to look at. 
The manna showed up every day, no matter how they were. It was loyal, basic need meeting. It met their needs in a basic way, and it was more loyal than they were. It was Jesus. But when our restlessness is not pointed to Christ, when we don't strive, listen to these words, when we don't strive to enter the rest of God, that is such an ironic statement. Work to enter the rest of God. It's effort for us to enter the rest of God in this life. Rest doesn't just happen to me. Rest is something I have to fight for. I have to fight to have my desires quiet down. They looked at what was loyal, and because they were trying to find rest in all other places, they said, and we have nothing but this worthless manna to look at. One of the signs that we are starting to place ourselves into too many idols to try to find rest is that the people, places, and things in our life that are the most loyal to us become boring, become uninteresting. They don't stimulate us anymore. And we disdain them. I love that Bishop Quentin Moore, when I was in Kansas, he looked at that bread in that cup and he said, Jesus shows up as a baby. I can't believe he did that. He grows and goes through growing pains. His knees hurt, his voice squeaked. He dies a murderer's death. And then he says, he ascends into heaven and becomes the power of God and then shows up in this meal. And he steps back and he looks at the meal and he says, man, he never stops being humble. No pomp, no circumstance, no big entrance, bread, juice. So unimpressive that it almost invites us to disdain it. But it tests us to say, do you trust me that in this small, insignificant loyalty that is my presence, that everything that is causing dis-ease and restlessness can be satisfied there? If he showed up impressive, we would never know. Read the book of Job. We would never know if we were satisfied in him because of his impressiveness or because of him. But when he shows up in the person sitting next to you, when he shows up in a praise dance, when he shows up in bread and cup, none of us are impressive. That meal is not impressive. When we can realize that he shows up in people and places and things like this, we're not in it for the impressive nature. We're in it for his heart. It helps us locate our heart. We have nothing but this worthless manna to look at. And so what happens? They get impulsive. They get angry. They're short-tempered. Their words are violent. They pick a side instantly and drive as fast as they can in that side. They go after Moses. They go after Aaron. Everyone is divided. What they've done is they've lost their temperance. Not temper. They've lost their temperance. Thomas Aquinas says this. Temperance is the virtue of being able to say no to the desires of the body, whether good or bad, insofar as they get in the way of higher goods. I'll say it again. 
Temperance is the virtue of being able to say no to the desires of the body, whether good or bad, insofar as those desires that we need to say no to are getting in the way of higher goods. What did Jesus say in the wilderness when he was tempted with hunger? Man does not live by bread alone. Do we need bread? Yes. Is bread a good thing to have? Yes. But Jesus is saying, just because there's needs, there's still a hierarchy of needs. And man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus says all needs are not created equal. I need to hear him more than I need to eat bread. And so I'm not going to lose my ability to hear God in my pursuit of baser desires. And he said that so we could say things like, man does not live by his job alone, but by every word. Man does not live by his marriage alone, but by every word. Man does not live by his opinion alone, but by every word. By the success of his children alone, but by every word. Everything in our life, we need to plug into that formula and say, man does not live by this alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the minute we live in those things alone, and we hope that the voice of God is something that will be added to us, we've reversed what Jesus said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. We've been seeking the add-ons and hoping that the necessity is going to be added to us. We've been seeking the horcruxes, hoping that his righteousness would be added to me. All needs are not created equal. My need to hear God is the strongest, most vital one that I have, including my need to breathe. Because when I stop breathing, I'll still be listening. For those of us who are leaders in any reality in life, And every single person here is. If your whole life is just you, you are the king or queen of that space that is just you. These are like old school principles. Like where you, your bedroom is your Garden of Eden. How does it look? Your closet is your Garden of Eden. How does it look? Okay. Some of us got to clean out our closet. Moses flips out. Listen to this. Moses is the one they're supposed to be following. Numbers 11, 10 to 16. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans. Everyone at the door of his tent. I'm not going to lie. That's annoying. All these people, like grown adults, crying at my door. I'd be like, Jacqueline, shut the shades. Like, we got to hide. Let's just nobody move. They're all here. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child? Moses is getting creepy with his analogies to God right now. Like he's flipping out. To the land that you swore to give their fathers, where am I to get meat to give all this people something to eat? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. It's rhymes. It's, 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 it rhymes like crazy. Give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, kill me. If I find favor in your sight, kill me, that I may not see my own wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, 
whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. For those of us who lead in our lives, children, homes, jobs, ministries, whatever it is, if the response of those that we lead is our horcrux, we will live and die with how well they do. If my output at work, if the way I handle projects and the way I get things done, if the way that I lead there and the ability to get them done is what holds me together, then when I don't, I won't be held together. When other people don't listen to me, I will crumble and ask God, get rid of me. We've all been there. We've been so mad. We're first, we're like, God, get rid of them. And then when God keeps them, you're like, fine, get rid of me. And then he keeps you too. And you're like, what do we do then? This is what he does. He says to us, don't lose your fortitude. Don't take your restlessness and place it in your ability to lead. Don't find rest in your ability to get things done. Don't find rest in your ability to influence other people. Should we be doing those things? Yes. But if I'm finding my rest in them, then that means my rest. For me personally, that would mean that my rest is dependent on all of you. As you go, so goes my heart. If your rest is in the outcome of your children, as your children go, so go your heart. And what will we do? We'll become afraid that we're messing up with our kids, that we're messing up with those we lead, that we're messing up with our church, we're messing up with our ministry, we're messing up with our social network because if they don't live the way that we want them to, and then we get restless because of it, we'll start strangleholding them. We'll stop them from being themselves and we'll turn them into ourselves. This is what's happening with Moses. Moses was so wrapped up in his, his rest was found in the people's positive response to him that when they went off the rails, so did Moses and asked God to kill him. That's dangerous. If I was God, I would have killed him. The Bible would have been so short. It wouldn't take a year to read it through. It would take eight minutes. I would have just killed everybody. It's like me, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is great. We don't argue. Good. What does Thomas Aquinas say about fortitude? Fortitude is that virtue that strengthens the soul to carry on toward what is good in spite of danger, tiredness, and other passions telling one to stop and give up. Fortitude is the, is the virtue that strengthens the soul to carry on toward what is good in spite of danger, tiredness, and other passions telling one to stop and give up. I read a story, um, we've all heard analogies like this in one of the commentaries where it talked about a man who wanted to pave over part of his property and there was a bamboo plant. And he cut it down, got rid of everything on the surface, poured bluestone on it, killed everything, paved over it. And then in two years, his driveway had a little bit of a lump. And then two years later, it had cracks. And then two years after that, it had a bamboo plant growing out of it. Because when something wills one thing, it can break through anything. The bamboo, 
the bamboo. The bamboo plant willed one thing, to grow toward the sun. And it pushed through poison. It pushed through darkness. It pushed through ground. It pushed through cement. It pushed through literally all the works of man. And it grew nonetheless. Because when we will one thing, we push away anything to get it. We destroy anything to get it. The question is, what is the one thing that you're willing, and what are you destroying to get it? And what if it's not God? What if the one thing we will isn't God? What will we destroy to get it? If it is God, like Jesus said, would we be willing to destroy our hand if it causes us to sin so that we could keep growing up? Notice Jesus chooses things that have two. Your eyes, your hands, your feet. He says, if one of them causes you to sin, cut it off. He's saying, anything in your life that's plural, anything in your life that can spread you out to more than just me, get rid of it, because I only want there to be one. One pursuit. One pursuit. Get rid of duality and just pursue me. What does God send Moses? He sends him elders. Why is that significant? Because earlier in Exodus, Moses was burning himself out. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, says, here's what you're going to do. You can't go on like this. You're going to burn yourself out. So he said, appoint elders. And allow those elders to deal with the people and what they can't resolve, bring that to you so that you're doing less work, but you're doing more meaningful work. In his passion, in his meltdown, in his temper tantrum, when his desires are bursting out of him like fireworks, all out of control, God brings him back to routine and structure. He doesn't bring bring him to an altar call and slap oil on him and all of a sudden Moses is better. He says, take all of your fire right now and put it back in a system that I gave you. Put it back into a discipline. Put it back into a routine. And it like Pastor Mark always says, it turns the, the fire that can burn a house down into a campfire that can warm you. It contains the passion and makes it something beautiful as opposed to something destructive. When God pushes us back to routines, he pushes us back to liturgy. He pushes us back to organized ways of approaching him when we're out of control. We need routine. We need structure. We need edges. But here's what he does. He then pours the Holy Spirit out on those elders, and they prophesy. In the middle of discipline, in the middle of sin, God looking at everything he did and everyone's acting crazy, he pours his spirit out on it. Because here's the reality. There's no discipline. There's no liturgy. There's no good idea. There's no proverb. There's no way of handling your finances or handling your love life or waiting until you get married. There's none of that that means anything without the Holy Spirit being poured out on it. Structure alone will kill us as quickly as no structure will if there's no Holy Spirit. Pursuing our own personal freedom will kill us if there's no Holy Spirit. Younger brother, leaving home to go crazy without the Holy Spirit will kill you. With the Holy Spirit, will bring you back home. Older brother, following all the rules, without the Holy Spirit, will kill you also. The Spirit, Salem. The Spirit is what we need as a people. Forget everything I just said. We need the Holy Spirit. Here's why. Because it's God. 
Want to know why that didn't impress you? Ronald Rollheiser. Read every book he ever wrote. Tonight. He said this. He said, while we're still in sinful flesh, desire is stronger than satisfaction. What did I just say to you? I said, you know why we need the Holy Spirit? Because he's God. And we all said, I know. Desire is stronger than satisfaction when we're in sinful flesh. So every answer that's the right one feels like a cliche. You're going through something. It's the worst thing you've ever been through. I'm going to pray for you. Sometimes that makes us feel better. Sometimes we think the person's lying, and they probably are. You're going through so much stuff. You know what, man? Jesus is your satisfaction. I know, Pastor. Somebody doesn't live where they want to live. Jesus is your satisfaction. Obviously. It doesn't help because our desires are stronger than the satisfaction that that brings. In Salem, we need to fight. We need to fight that the answers that satisfy actually can outweigh our desires. We cannot live in a world where somebody says, Jesus is enough for you. You can lose everything, and Jesus is enough, and doubt that answer. We will die if that happens. If bread and cup don't impress us, nothing will. If Jesus is enough for you, doesn't impress you, nothing will. If knowing that my inheritance is reserved for me until a time when God comes to bring me to it doesn't help, nothing will. So we don't need more hope. We have all the punchlines, and they're all true, and they're all cliche because they're that true. We sit there and say, oh, you know what, that's cliche, don't say it. Well, you know what, when Jacqueline says I love you, that's cliche too because she says it all the time, and I need to hear it every single day. The minute it stops meaning something, oxygen has been removed from that relationship. Jesus is enough. Has to matter. And here's the reality. It won't matter. We need the Holy Spirit to create the space enough, the space in us for that phrase to matter. You're a son or a daughter of God. If that doesn't matter to you when you hear it, we need the Holy Spirit to make space in us. That's why before God does any discipline, before he brings any chastisement, before he does anything, he sends prophets. He gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the rest of the Bible, before they go into exile, he sends the prophets. Before Jesus comes and judges the world, they send John the Baptist. There's always prophecy before there's judgment. There's always prophecy before there's revelation. Because the gift of the Spirit is what paves the way for us to receive the next thing that's said. You need the Holy Spirit on you right now if you're going to hear me say Jesus is enough for you and have it excite you. And if you're struggling right now to say this is boring, it's after 1130, and they want us to go to Main Street. If you're struggling right now for real, and this happens, and it's true, and it's real. I sat here for 20 years. Pastor Mark annoyed me for 25 The Holy Spirit has to turn on our base level stimulators. We need to be stimulated by him in the most simple way. We shouldn't need someone to preach the best sermon to get excited. We should do what the first verse we read today was. Jesus saying, if they're doing anything in my name, it's working. And that's it. Why does the phrase, the gospel is enough for you, 
not stir something so deep inside of us. We need the Holy Spirit. Because this, this is the last thing I'm going to say. Jesus is God. Which means that God poured himself into another person and didn't cease being himself when he poured. If I have water in cup A and I pour it into cup B, there's no more water in cup A. Cup B has now pretty much become cup A. But God poured himself into humanity but didn't lose anything that was in the first cup. He kept pouring and that cup kept spilling but it was never emptying because the spirit is what keeps God full and what keeps Jesus full and Jesus and God keep pouring themselves into each other because the spirit is what allows you to pour yourself out and not lose yourself at all. Are you tired? The Holy Spirit is what helps you pour yourself out and not lose yourself. Are you emotionally spent? The Holy Spirit is what helps you pour yourself out and not lose yourself. To the extent that we're like Moses and we're shutting down because of fatigue, because of our emotions, because of our fears, we just don't have enough of the Spirit working in our life. And so we need the Holy Spirit. Let's stand to our feet. The Holy Spirit is what has to fall on this church. The Holy Spirit is what can satisfy our deepest longings, our restlessness. And here's what I want to do. I want us to come to the table of the Lord. And then when we've received the bread and the cup, I want anyone who feels restless inside. Don't overthink it, any kind of restlessness at all. It doesn't have to be deep. Anyone who feels restless at all, after you take the bread and the cup, I want you to stay at the altar. And if anybody else in the room feels the spirit moving in them, I want you to come and I want you to pray for that person. If you go back to your seats and you realize you need prayer, ask somebody next to you to pray for you. Have two people get together, three people get together and pray. I want this church to pray because here's why. God gave those elders the spirit to let Moses know we can bear the burden of one another so long as we have the Holy Spirit. And that's why Moses said and that's why Paul said and that's why I'm going to say I wish that everyone was prophets. Because when we have the spirit on us, we can bear one another's burdens. We can carry the weight that no one was meant to carry by themselves. Whoever's serving the elements, you can come. So when you come and you receive this worthless bread, this unimpressive meal, when you come and receive it, if you feel restless, ask somebody in this room to pray for you. I don't want the elders and the pastor to be praying. I want them to have somebody pray for them if they need to. I'm going to ask Tim to pray for me because I'm a little bit restless. And I want Tim to pray for me after I come to the table. I'm restless over a lot of things. So don't feel bashful. Don't feel shy. Don't feel like you're failing. No one up here. Pray for each other. It's better than singing. You got people up there, pray for each other. It's better than getting the lyrics right on the screen. Let's pray. Let's receive Christ. And then pray for each other.
Don't have to spill personal business. Just pray for me for two minutes. Ask God to help me come home. Ask God to help my heart come home to him. That's the prayer. If you don't know what to pray, if you're embarrassed to pray out loud, put your hands on somebody and say 75 times in a row, Spirit, help this person's heart come home. Help this person's heart come home. Help their heart to come home. Say it until those words mean something to you. And then keep saying it. We need the spirit sound to fall on this room. We need the gifts of the spirit. How many kids are downstairs? 30 kids downstairs right now, and none of them are called into the ministry? Nonsense. There's callings down there. There's pastors down there. There's missionaries down there. There's evangelists down there. And we've stopped. God did not stop calling people into the ministry in 1979. When I came here, there was 15 people called into the ministry, and right now there's no one behind me. Some of you are called into the ministry. Some of you are called to get ordained. Some of you have a gift of healing. Some of you have the gift of prophecy. Some of you have the gift of intercession, the gift of reconciliation. Some of you have a deliverance ministry. And honestly, I'd rather deal with all the sloppiness that comes with those ministries than not deal with them at all. Yes. I'd rather deal with us prophesying the wrong thing than not prophesying at all. Because man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that God speaks. And I want us at least trying to tell each other what God says. We've all seen some freaky prophecies before that were nuts. Honestly, I'd rather deal with that than not deal with them at all. I'd rather have a church failing in the gifts than failing by not executing them at all. We need the spirit to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Heavenly Father, right now, we're getting ready to come to your table. And I pray for anyone in this room who feels that their life has become profoundly unimpressive, that feels that the relationships have become unimpressive. God, that feels that you have become unimpressive. Anyone who's restless, anyone who's diseased, bring us to this table, Spirit, and show us something in this bread and this cup in something so boring and so scandalously simple. God, when we see a shooting star, we know it's you, but we can't see you in a piece of bread. Help us right now with that. If we can't see you in mundane elements, we won't see you in anybody we see on Main Street today. We won't see you in the pain and struggle of tragedy in our lives. Father God, cornerstones are profoundly unimpressive, but they hold up the whole structure. Help us to look at this worthless bread and realize it's priceless. I pray that you anoint people to pray. I pray that you anoint people with the humility to ask for it. I pray, Father God, not that, the, that we would cure restlessness, but today that we would finally become okay saying we have it and asking for prayer in this room. Fill this room with the anointing to heal. Fill this room. Remove all distractions from this place right now, Father God. Anything that is pulling us out of this room, remove it from our minds, from our hearts, from our soul. And give us the grace to eat and to pray.
And Lord, I ask that we would take our restlessness out of anything and put it in you and trust you with our heart and trust you with our disease. Holy Spirit, fall on these gifts and make them for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And sanctify us also that we may come to this table examined and repenting, knowing that we're going to encounter the living God. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.